Grace to you and peace from God our Father and and from our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. What does the word or phrase day off bring to mind for you? Hopefully some of you uh, certainly get to experience that on a regular basis. You know, preachers are especially the types that are are pretty protective, or at least we, we try to be, of our day off. And, and usually we try to keep it top secret what we're doing on those days off. But uh, since none of the other pastors are here, I'm going to tell you what each of them does. Pastor Brandt, um, don't tell him I told you this, but he tries to keep it a secret, but he works on his golf game all the time. <laughs> Pastor Bender works on his horseback riding all the time. Um, he's got a long way to go on that. Uh, Pastor Adams likes to go mountain climbing. Um, the vicar, well, we don't give the vicar a day off. <laughs> don't tell him that either. And, and me, well, I like to go hunting, but it seems like every year I'm looking for new hunting partners. So anybody want to volunteer? No, I use that phrase day off pretty loosely in the sermon title because it's um, probably not true at all that Jesus, I don't know if you could say he ever took a day off in his ministry as a preacher, as a teacher, as the Son of God. But as we study these days of the, the Passion Week, the Holy Week, as we have by making use of the book Killing Jesus, It seems that Wednesday is, in fact, the day that was the lightest in terms of the scriptural record of what Jesus may have been up to. And I think that's why the other pastors let me have Wednesday, because if you've been following along in the book at all or reading it, you know that Wednesday was only like three pages long. And and they knew that's about my attention span for reading. So I appreciate that, that... um, that they let me have that day. But seriously, it might be one thing to think of Jesus having a day off. But in light of what was to come, how well do you rest or relax the day before you're scheduled to see the doctor or have a procedure done or have major surgery? How well do you sleep before a major exam or test, something that's weighing heavenly on your mind? How well do you relax when you're worried about your, your kids or your parents or, or your relationships or something like that? Yeah, Jesus may not have had a busy schedule on Wednesday. But in light of what he was going to be going through in the next hours, I can't even imagine. I would imagine he started the day, though, with prayer, as it seems he often did. Perhaps went away by himself so that he could spend some time alone. 
Maybe the rest of the day he was uh, interacting with his disciples or, or those around Bethany. You remember, he, he spent the nights in Bethany and then walked each day, except for Wednesday apparently, into Jerusalem and, and did teaching. Monday was the day he cleansed the, table, uh, cleansed, cleansed the temple. Tuesday was, was certainly the day where he had quite a bit of teaching and, and his disciples were asking him when he talked about the temple being destroyed and, and what the signs of the end times would be and so forth. But maybe on Wednesday he just hung out at the homes of like Lazarus, Mary, Martha, others that he knew. But one thing that we're pretty sure probably happened on that Wednesday was that first reading, the account of a dinner party that was held in Jesus' honor there in Bethany at the home of a man named Simon, but Simon the leper. Now, boys and girls, if you're thinking, and, and rightfully so, that someone with leprosy uh, was supposed to stay away from everybody else and, and shouldn't be having people over, let alone having a dinner party. You're absolutely right. Which has led many to the conclusion, and, and again, probably so, that this Simon was a former leper and more than likely had been healed by Jesus. And so perhaps in appreciation for that or just showing his gratitude, he had invited guests and there Jesus was invited for a dinner party. Now one thing, um, as we've commented on the, on the good resource that this book has been and the scholarship that's been put into it and research, I think I would have a disagreement with um, what seems to be the case. The author seems to conflate what I believe are two separate dinner parties, although they may have only happened days apart. Um, the author seems to make them the same party, but it seems that, that Jesus was at the home, perhaps of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, on Saturday before Palm Sunday, and um, that's when Mary took a jar of expensive ointment and broke the neck off and poured it on Jesus' feet, we're told, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. And you might recall on that occasion, the disciples, specifically Judas, raised objections. Well, I know it might seem hard to believe, but I guess I don't think it is really that far of a stretch to consider that perhaps some very similar events happened four days later on that Wednesday evening, this time in the home of Simon the leper, where an unnamed woman takes a jar of expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus' head and anoints him. Remember again that the Passover festival in Jerusalem was one of the most busiest and major gathering times for the entire nation. And we can imagine that surrounding Jerusalem and communities like Bethany, that there would be all sorts of, of gatherings and, and parties, if you will, and, and dinners and the like. And so there Jesus is again, the guest of honor in a home. And a woman to show her devotion 
to show her act of worship takes this apparently very expensive perfume, ointment, and pours it on Jesus' head. If you've been around strong perfume, you know that, yes, it can smell wonderful, but too much of it? It may be hard to breathe or take in, and I don't know what it was like in that home of of Simon, but I would imagine that it certainly, nobody could have been there without noticing what had taken place. And again, the disciples, this time it says the disciples, plural, raised objections to Jesus and to the woman and to everyone. Why this waste, they said. Do you know how much money we could have used instead of having it be just poured out like this? We could have sold that and look at all the good hands-on type ministry we could do to the poor that are around us. They have a point? It would seem like it. But yet Jesus brings a quick end to that. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing. What she has done is going to be remembered throughout history. And isn't it interesting to think that all of us gathered here today on March 18, 2015, are in a sense another fulfillment of Jesus prophecy, that her story is told again as we hear the good news of Jesus. She has done this, he said, in order to prepare me for my burial. He alone truly knew what those next hours would hold. And there he was with friends, with his family, enjoying, and I'm sure grieving, and also receiving this act of worship. I like the notion that is purported here that perhaps it was immediately after this dinner, or maybe while it was still going on, that Judas left. His decision having been made. He had heard somehow through the grapevine that the religious leaders were looking for info on how to get to Jesus. And being an inside the group, Judas now made his way back the less than two miles to the palace of the of the chief priests and the elders. Perhaps a bit nervous about whether they would receive him or or treat him like they would of Jesus or How would he be welcomed? 
But before we get there, what was Judas' motivation? I would imagine the number of times that you've heard the account of, of Judas betraying his Lord and Savior has caused you to try to get inside of his head, and, and this book is no different. This book would suggest that Judas was, in fact, a, a true zealot for the nation of Israel. And although misguided, he really thought of Jesus as being the Messiah in a political <coughs> sense. And that all of this talk that Jesus seemed to be doing about um, predicting suffering and death just seemed to make absolutely no sense to Judas. And he couldn't understand why Jesus was waiting. He was missing a great opportunity to rally the troops, so to speak, and to, and to be able to assemble people to, to rebel, to revolt, to, to be the leader that they were hoping he would be. And so by going to the chief priests, by actually turning Jesus over in his way, Judas is supposed to have thought that he was going to force Jesus' hand. That if Jesus was the Messiah and these chief priests meant him harm, he would use his miraculous powers or the crowds or whatever means appropriate to deliver him and to begin the long-awaited rebellion. Or, if for some reason he wasn't the Messiah, then he was an imposter. And whatever the chief priest did with him, well, as long as Judas was okay, that's all that mattered. I don't know. Some of these things were not able to know. Others look at what the scriptures have said about Judas and, and uh, the fact that being the money, uh, the treasurer of the group, as it reports in the Gospels, he used to help himself all the time to the money. That Judas, who betrayed him, was kind of just a no good and um, devious, um, thieving type person throughout. And that he really didn't think about it, perhaps, as much as some others would say. Again, I don't know what his motivations were. But we do know that when he went to the chief priests, when he went to the palace, they were glad. And they settled on that arrangement for the 30 pieces of silver. And from that point on, Judas looked for an opportunity where he could get word so that they could come and arrest him. Now maybe you're thinking, wow, that sounds way too deep to think about and try to get into the head of somebody and their motivations that is 2,000 years ago, and, and you may be right. To think that it would be so political or that he would be so conniving or, or so uh, intentional about what he was doing. But is that really that different than what we do on a daily basis? And what I mean by that is this, aren't we not all political 
creatures. Political in the sense of that as we interact with people, and as we go about our daily lives, as we go to work, as we go to card club, as we go out to eat, or as we uh, go on vacation or recreate with people, or dare I say, even as we go to church, we gauge our responses, what we say, what we do, how we appear, not necessarily on the basis of how we may feel or who we really are, but on the basis of what we want others to think about us. And that could be for good, but so often we use it only from a selfish position. Can we get into all of the thinking and the political process that goes through our head? in terms of who we're going to say hi to or go out of our way to shake hands with or the list goes on. And in so doing, do we find that we truly have at heart the will and the mind and the plan that our Lord and Savior Jesus has? Or our own? There's Jesus knowing everything. One gospel writer says to Judas the next night as they're at the dinner, the Passover, Judas, whatever you must do, do it quickly. And as certainly as Jesus knew Judas, so he knows us. In need of his grace, in need of his forgiveness, in need of his unconditional love. And that is exactly what he gives us. In Jesus' name, amen.